There are so many reasons to get hooked on Church's 8-piece shrimp meal. It's dippable, crunchable, downright irresistible, and it starts at $5.99. The only catch, it's only here for a limited time. Church's Texas Chicken, welcome to the great state of flavor. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and Prime services so you can manage all your crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform while giving clients the market's best all-in pricing through their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Coinbase Prime extends beyond individuals, with companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy using the investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Coinbase is the only publicly traded company with experience trading and custodying crypto assets at scale. Build a unified investment portfolio with the most trusted name in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com slash prime to get started. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Andrew Steinwald. Andrew is the managing partner at Sfermion, an NFT-focused investment firm where he makes venture-style bets and invests directly in NFTs. He is a pioneer in the space launching one of the first ever NFT funds available for outside investors. We discussed the challenges of starting up a Web3 fund, how NFTs make the metaverse possible, and what drives value in various NFT categories. Please enjoy this conversation with Andrew Steinwald. So today I'm excited to have Andrew Steinwald, managing partner of Sofermion, host of Zima Red, and maybe most importantly, the husband of Josie Bellini. I thought that would actually be a fun place to start with Josie. For those of you who don't know her, she's an incredible digital artist. So Andrew, thank you for joining me today. But let's start with your most impressive title, Husband of Josie, and how you two got into crypto NFTs in this crazy world. Thank you, Eric. Super happy to be here. It's funny you said that because so many people say that. I'll go to a conference and whatnot, and they'll come to me like, you're married to Josie, you're married to Josie. How is it? I'm like, it's awesome. Someone said this. Your most important decision in life is who you marry. And I totally ascribe to that now. I used to not think that as I got older, I was like, that is absolutely the case. And we actually met in Mexico. And one of my openers to her was, have you heard of Ethereum? And she said, yes, this is in 2017. And I was like, oh my God, this girl has heard about Ethereum. I'm going to talk to her about it for the rest of the time I'm here. That's really how we connected. We started dating. I dug her deeper into crypto. And then when CryptoKitties came out at the end of 2017, this is December, She'd gotten her wisdom teeth out and I was taking care of her and she was really into CryptoKitties. She was bringing them and training them with my friends. And I thought it was interesting for her as something very cool. She's like, this is really, really sweet. Fast forward six months, she'd already been creating physical artwork that involved crypto in some sense, Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera. So she was already deep, but she saw the broader implications of NFTs and what they could be. 
I was thinking about them as what I saw, which was CryptoKitties, which is cool. It was exciting, but not going to be an asset class. And it wasn't until she said, hey, I'm going to NFT NYC. This is now February of 2019. So it's been a full year or bear market time. She said, I'm going to this conference. It's all about NFTs. You should come. I said, yeah, you know what? I'll check it out. I went there and it was like an aha moment. I spoke with one individual, Jin or Bird is what he goes as. I actually don't even know his real name. Known him for years. Awesome guy. And he's like a metaverse master. He knows all about the metaverse and VR and AR and developer and everything like that. And I spoke to him for four and a half hours at this conference. He was the one who showed me the light and said, listen, the metaverse is now possible because of NFTs. The missing link was really property rights and people having ownership. And we're heading in that direction of more immersion anyways with our technology. So now we're able to actually own our stuff and earn a living natively in this world. And that to me was just like, oh my gosh, we've now given property rights to 4.7 billion people and it's going to unlock massive amounts of commerce, massive amounts of value creation. There's going to be value destruction, of course, because it's got a lot of experimentation. But the analogy I use is I was like, what are the ramifications of giving 4.7 billion people the ability to engage in commerce, essentially frictionless commerce, because it's all built on the blockchain financial system, which is comparatively frictionless to our actual financial system. And I looked at China, 1982, thought capitalism was going pretty well. They're like, hey, we should try this. What we're going to do is we're going to give our citizens property rights and allow them to start businesses and really just open up the doors for them to engage in commerce. Fast forward 40 years, they're now the number one economy. GDP per capita has risen multiple Xs, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, just massive, massive growth, massive, massive economic changes. I looked at that. I was like, wow, that was 1.2 billion people with a financial system that was anything but frictionless. And now we just did 4.7 billion people in a frictionless financial system. The NFT blockchain revolution is going to make the past 40 years of tech growth look stagnant by comparison the next 40 years. One thing that's kind of an interesting takeaway is you have a personal lens, but the crypto OGs seem to like have an early disdain for NFTs. Some still have it. Some have converted to like, okay, this is something else. But I was surprised there were people that made a lot of money in past cycles. And when NFTs showed up, they were just dismissed. Now, you obviously had this very interesting deep connection on the artist side. But why do you think that kind of crypto OG group was at first so dismissive? And to this point, the ones that still think NFTs are a passing fad and not a big part of the crypto ecosystem. I think it just comes down to human nature. It was funny because when I started to go and raise for my funds, it was summer of 2020 when I first attempted to raise for this. It was an NFT fund, right? Which back then, like no one knew about NFTs. And I thought, okay, well, I'll go pitch all the crypto OGs because they know, especially the Bitcoin OGs, because I know a lot of them. And these guys have been in since 2013, 2012, 2011. They were the harshest critics. They're like, wait, so you're buying World of Warcraft swords? Why would you not invest in World of Warcraft? I was like, ideally, we do both, but you're opening up the World of Warcraft economy. If it were an open economy, billions of dollars would be traded and generated through that world every year. There's going to be a lot of value created in those types of environments. I pitched 500 times, at least. The vast majority were just like, you're out of your mind. You're stupid. What are you doing? And it wasn't until the narrative switched from DeFi. Summer of 2020 was DeFi summer. The yield and the gains that people were generating, they started to trend downwards. And the DeFi crowd were looking at, okay, what's the next big thing? What's the next big market? That crowd went into NFTs. And NFTs, we joke, it was like the same, like 10,000 of us all trading amongst each other and having fun. And that crowd came in. We were like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. There's so many people now. It's like doubling 20,000 people, let's say. That DeFi crowd quickly realized, wait a second, our skill set does not apply here. There's different value drivers, different communities, different culture even. What that did do though, is it brought a lot of attention to the NFT ecosystem. And then after that narrative switched where NFTs were suddenly something that people want to learn more about, 
those people that DM previously, they say, hey, Andrew, I want to chat more with you about what you're doing in building. I can't answer that question about why the OGs were against it. But I do know that once the narrative switched within crypto, we're not even talking about the broader populace. This is just within our crypto bubble. Then it was cool and totally fine. I'm excited to get into the fund structure and how we got there. But before that, I think one of the things you do a great job on Twitter is giving market updates and activity. Give us a snapshot of where we are now in NFT market activity, however, the metrics that you look at to get a sense of the health of the market. To go back to 2019, where we launched the yearly volume in OpenSea. I'm using OpenSea because they're responsible for 80 to 90% of all NFT trade volume. When we launched, it was $7.8 million in trade volume that year. Next year, this is 2020, it was $82 million of trade volume. Massive increase. In 2021, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was $16 billion something in dollars in trade volume. That's like a 66,000% increase in trade volume. And you know, you can point to unprecedented money printing and the macro environment was totally frothy. And a lot of that definitely had a huge contributing factors. Adding COVID, everyone's at home. Still, to me, it was, wow, I can't believe this is already happening. I thought it was going to take a couple more years. But also, I think that we were mad scientists and we're like, let's design the most fun, engaging, addictive asset class in the world. They'd be NFTs. They're part meme, they're part joke, they're part community, they're social, they're status. They're all these kind of human-related emotional factors involved into an internet-native asset that can transfer on seamless rails. It was going to happen regardless, but it just happened in a big way in 2021. 2022, we just broke, I believe, 18 billion in trade volume. That being said, after the other side land sale, which is this land sale by the Board of Yacht Club, they're launching this virtual world and they were selling land. After that land sale, I think it was a month ago, maybe two months ago, you can just see the volume peaked. It was the highest volume day ever on OpenSea. And then now we're trending at $15 million a day in trade volume, which is dramatically lower. That's due to the bear market, macro, crypto, and traditional finance are both doing not great. So understandable. But for us, we're like $15 million a day. When we launched, it was $7.8 million a year. We're still happy we're chugging along here, but things are looking on the trade volume side bleak. But what's really interesting is that people in the NFT markets, they're fleeing to what are considered blue chips. These are the top, mostly collectible and art assets, these assets with little to no functionality. People are fleeing to those and the dollar price has not increased dramatically. In some instances, it has increased a little bit because they're priced in Ethereum or priced in Solana or priced in whatever token that it trades in. Ethereum is down 50, 60%, but the Ethereum price maybe went from 50 Ether for this CryptoPunk. Now they're trading at 80 Ether or with board apes, 60 Ether to 100 Ether. It's really interesting to see that. And it mirrors what happened in 2019. There was like a mini bull bear cycle. Beginning of 2019, there was this fake out bull market where everyone got really excited. Bitcoin was going up, Ethereum was going up, NFT activity really increased. And then towards the fall, as like the end of summer, it started to actually reverse and everything crashed right back down. But people were unfazed in NFTs at that time because people were like, well, I'm buying this asset, not purely for monetary reasons, but as I mentioned before, social status, community, there's all these emotional human reasons as to why. And people would also say, I'm trying to stack more Ether. I'm long Ether, therefore I don't really mind the price currently. I just want more Ether because I know in the future it's going to be worth X. So really weird and interesting and fun dynamics happening in the market. Overall, I would say for the next year or so, it's going to be muted definitely comparatively to last year, which was a little bit frothy. I think it's so funny that behavior of when prices are going up, people are saying in USD, this crypto punk costs $300,000, this board apes $400,000. But when stuff falls, it's like, well, it's holding 100 ETH. I'm surprised. I'm curious if you are, and we use the word blue chips and NFTs for like these top tier projects. If you had told me that 
we would be at 9.1% inflation, that the stock market had fallen this much. And you had asked me both in ETH terms and dollar terms where we'd be. It would have been a catastrophic number. I never thought these prices would have held as well as they did in light of everything else. Have you been surprised that the blue chip assets have held up? Or is this part of your thesis that a lot of supply came on the market and if people were going to stay around, they'd want to stay in the more top tier projects? It's funny you asked that because logically, I thought, okay, people are not going to care about CryptoPunks or board Apes or whatever. They're going to want to buy groceries. And we're still not there yet. That could happen in a couple of months, but that was my thought process. What I saw from 2019 was people like flee to these quote unquote blue chips. And it's arguable to say that they're blue chips because a lot of these assets didn't exist 16 months ago. So they're still like that. It definitely surprised me to the extent. I thought there was going to be much more pain in NFTs. In reality, it kind of goes back to one of our theses is that these participants in the market, they're gamers, they're hobbyists, they're collectors. They don't really care about the S&P. They don't really care about even like Bitcoin. They're like, no, no, I just want social status within this community. Oh, no, no, I want to be a part of this group because it's really cool. Or I want to play this game. Or I need this sword to defeat this boss in this game. So I'll pay anything. Or this piece of virtual land, my best friend moved right next to it. I'll pay anything to be right next to him because he's my best friend. That to us is really exciting. And really the strengths of the NFT markets compared to crypto. And one thing I've said is that crypto is like the money of the metaverse. And NFTs represent the goods and services economy. Because we had this financial system that people were trading with. And I don't want to say gambling, but the objective in crypto is to make money. That's the sole objective. And all the incentives are economic. It's like, okay, you want to participate in this protocol, staking or whatnot. You're going to have to do this function and then you'll earn money buy this token, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all economic incentives. Crypto, on the other hand, is not like that. It's all t-shirts and cool cars and status and watches and whatever. And that's what it is today. It's these fun, friendly markets of collectibles, gaming, art, virtual land, et cetera, low stakes things. In the future, that'll change dramatically. It's going to be loans and property titles and all sorts of IP and whatnot. But as of now, it's nice that this market can be sustained by regular people doing like the regular human things versus just trying to purely make money. I'm curious to dive into Sofermio now, the firm that you founded to invest in NFTs and Web3 projects. It's funny hearing your story of splitting this up in 2019. I know that you were doing crypto before, so maybe tell us a little bit about that. But I think for most people, there was kind of pre and post Top Shot. For the people that were trading those Top Shots, this basketball card, NFT, you got these digital moments, and that kind of caused an explosion, at least for me, of I was playing with crypto. I had toyed around with NFTs, but Top Shot was the thing that to me made me think, okay, there's something to be traded here. There's an asset class formation. This is going to be used for a lot of different things. But you were playing with it way before that. To go start a fund, to take all this risk with your career, when to your point, annual volume of everyone is a couple million bucks. It's a pretty crazy bet you made really early, which I have a lot of respect for. Take me back to the formation of the business, how you got there, why you decided to start this company. I basically discovered Bitcoin in 2013. I actually sold all my Bitcoin in 2014, sadly. After I sold, I actually dove into blockchain. I didn't even really understand what blockchain was. But when I did, it connected in my brain. I was like, oh my gosh, blockchain is really useful for so many different types of applications, not just finance, but it'll be useful for all different types of Web2 and now you know Web3 use cases. I thought, okay, Bitcoin speculation, not real, blockchain, good. So 2014, 2016, I attended two different startups involving blockchain. Both did not work out, unfortunately, but you just kept trying. What I realized in 2016 was, okay, I actually can see the value prop for Bitcoin now. There's a lot of issues with government having control over our money and having a source of non-sovereign value is really important. 
there's a few other coins back then where I was like, okay, like these actually make sense. Most of them are not real and kind of bullshit, but a lot of them are starting to make sense. Therefore, I know a lot about this. Um, what I can do instead of focusing on one startup, I should try to deploy capital to the best teams and to the best startups to really support the ecosystem that way. I teamed up with my good friend, Dan Patterson. He was a PE guy out in Hong Kong. He knew all about fund operations, how to set up a fund, how to operate a fund, et cetera. We ended up launching Polynexus Capital in July, 2017. That was our crypto fund. And we were liquid assets only. We were doing well. We were being the market, but compared to our peers, we were vastly underperforming because we didn't really do venture. If you had the option of multi-coin or like Polynexus, you're going to choose multi-coin. And we realized, okay, this is 2018 now. We're kind of a middle of the road crypto fund. Not great. Whatever we're going to do, we want to do it really well and be the best at it. Well, we were looking at, okay, what sub-market within crypto can we enter and become the domain experts in? Dove into DeFi 2018, realized this is not our skill set. It's a very quantitative and technical skill set, did not suit us. And then dove deeper into NFTs due to Josie. And then attend that conference and everything clicked like immediately. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. We were already searching for what sub-market can we enter within crypto. We know crypto is going to be huge. Web3 is going to be huge. We don't know how it's going to look, how it's going to evolve. When I discovered NFTs, I was like, this is going to be larger than crypto. Crypto is the financial system. This is everything else. I was looking at stats of screen time because I was like, okay, well, where are we headed as a species, as people? We're headed towards more screen time, more and more immersion in our technology. And our communications technology is constantly getting more immersive. We start off with a telegraph, which is not immersive at all. Telephones, you can suddenly hear someone. Like, that's crazy. Now we're doing video calls. You can see me and hear me. So it's two senses now. Like, that's crazy. We're going to have VR. VR is still not in the spot that's mainstream. Like, I get sick. I put in the headset for like 15 minutes. I feel terrible. Combine that with screen time, where the average American is at seven hours per day. TV, phone, computer. We're spending most of our waking hours staring at screens. So we're already living like the quote unquote metaverse. Then you combined that with blockchain and NFTs. Wait a second. We can now own our stuff on the internet, natively digital stuff. And we can create stuff anytime we want with no resources, no skills. We can just like mint NFTs and create assets. The metaverse is now possible because of this. And the metaverse is going to have larger impact on people and our society and economy than the internet because the internet with ownership. That's pretty much how it started. And 2019 is when we actually ended up launching Sofermion, the NFT fund, personal capital for the first two years. And then we launched with outside capital. We ended up also launching something called Zima Red. It's just a newsletter podcast all about NFTs. Because one thing we learned is that brand building is very important. You need to have a big brand. And the reason for that is for deal flow. And then also you get to learn. It's like a cheat code. It's like, if I ask some of these founders, hey, can you spare an hour? Like, eh, no. But if I say, hey, spare an hour and I have a podcast, I'm like, oh, hell yeah. I love that. That to me is the biggest source of learning for myself. And at the same time, get to build my brand. When you were launching the NFT fund, you talk about your pitch, but the original fund, fund one, does that just directly invest in NFTs or is that also venture early on? It directly invests in NFTs. It does have some exposure to venture, but it's a very, very small portion, two, three deals. The only reason that happened, the venture exposure was because our venture fund wasn't ready and we had to close quickly. So we're like, okay, we'll do it. It's a direct NFT fund. And then our second fund is a venture fund. So on the direct NFT fund, I'm curious how you think about that vehicle in general. Does that make sense to hold NFTs on behalf of investors? What was the pitch like to outside LPs? Are they interested in that? And we'll get to the venture side, but I'm just curious to kind of drill into the NFT fund to start. The pitch on the NFT fund directly is, number one, it's like venture-like returns. You get venture-like returns in a condensed timeframe. We're buy and hold. We're not really traders. And our whole period varies highly, but we'll call it three months to 1.5 years for the NFTs. That's very attractive. And our fund is not a vanilla venture fund where it's a 10-year lockup. It's shorter. 
LPs like that. And also a lot of them are crypto people or kind of finance people. And they know NFTs are going to be something important. And they just want that access to the information. If someone who's buying the actual assets, talking to all the teams, investing in the, in the actual teams, they're going to have a deeper understanding versus someone who's investing in crypto or DeFi or traditional finance, whatnot. So it's kind of like an informational thing for them. And yeah, when we were setting it up, it was an absolute nightmare. When we set up our crypto fund in 2017, July, that was hard. We're like, oh man, this is not easy. There's so many more requirements and they're charging us extra. Setting up that was like a dream comparative to setting up the NFT fund. We had to pitch our legal to set up the entities. That's like the easiest part. Like you hire legal, you set up the entities and do the paperwork and whatnot. We had to pitch so many different law firms to work with us. We were on a last law firm and I was like, man, this is just not going to work maybe. I pitched him and he pauses and he goes, that's awesome. And I was like, these are my people. Like, this is amazing. This guy gets it. He's like, you're the first person I've ever heard do this. And the reason I pitched them last is because they were the most expensive and they're like the top law firm in crypto. I didn't have enough money. But anyways, we ended up going with them. We've been with them since. They're great. That was like easy comparatively to the fund administration and dealing with that and the accounting because you're dealing with thousands of individual assets. There's no like, oh, just plug into the API of the exchange and like done. No, no, it's on chains through MetaMask. So looking on chain and lots and lots of conversations to deconstruct our trades and what's happening there. And there's funniness with gas. Like, how come your fee was 20 bucks and then next day it's $1 for this transfer and whatnot? Custody is a huge issue. Early on, we were self-custody because we literally had no option. It's not possible. Now we're using a custodian and that's been also a battle. Everyone says that they're experimenting with NFT custody and like we're working on that. No one's really doing that except for a very, very few number of people. And even now, while we are using a custodian, in the States, obviously, if you're over 150 million AUM, you need to register with the SEC. We're getting close to that point. And once you do that, you have to use a qualified custodian. So we have a great custody system set up, but they are not considered a qualified custodian in the US. It's just not ideal. Our audit is quadruple what we were paying for our crypto funds. I think that's actually how we met Roham from Dapper and I were talking about different things and how to play in this asset class space. I talked about the fund structure. He's like, you got to talk to Andrew. And I remember you walking me through some of these early war stories. And I will say, you get a lot of credit for the podcast and for the raising of the next fund. But I don't know if people totally appreciate how much hand-to-hand combat you've gone through to like bring this to life. Because like for me, it ended up a bit in the too hard pile because I'm like, oh my God, you can't get a US fund administrator. Custody, like you said, is a problem. Pricing is a nightmare. Just like the battle to do it is pretty crazy. Even though we've evolved a little bit over the past couple of years, to your point, we're nowhere near where some of the firms might want to be if they actually wanted to get people exposure to this asset class through a third-party asset manager. It's definitely been a battle, but the alternative is like, well, if it were so easy, the market would not be as alpha-rich and those returns would not necessarily be there. That being said, people are working on infrastructure and we're actually building out our own internal infrastructure. We've hired a lot of technical folks to help build that out because these solutions that are out in the market today, they're not fund-grade, they're like retail-grade, and we really need things to the penny. Things are moving, they're moving slowly, but just be prepared to pay extra and have a lot more work to do. But at the end of the day, you're learning a lot. It's fun because it's just like, you know, when you go through hardship, I don't know if you've ever run like a marathon or something like that with your buddies or done some hard physical activity with your buddies and you guys look over and just kind of laugh at each other. It's kind of like shared pain, like this is ridiculous. It's kind of like one of those things. So it's fun. Some of the hard things that lead to this. So maybe that's where the next topic came from is when you went to raise fund two, Fund 2 is a much larger fund. It seems like it's more venture-focused. Does Fund 2 also have any plans to hold direct NFTs or is Fund 2 a pure venture-backed fund? It is a pure venture fund, but that being said, we do have four NFTs in there 
for a specific reason. There's 10,000 crypto punks, and there is 24 of these punks that were created that were physical punks. They were printed out on these great prints, and the actual punks were transferred to a paper wallet inside the frame of the asset. It's bare good. We actually purchased a couple of those through that fund. That is a venture type investment where we're going to buy and hold this for quite some time. But that's a whole nother issue. We're dealing with physical goods that are custodied in a warehouse in New York City and whatnot. But besides that, it's all venture. It's really focused on NFT infrastructure and really focused on financial infrastructure, social or experiential infrastructure, and then gaming infrastructure. So it's multifaceted. What we've realized is, okay, we need to actually specialize again. And we're going to do that by finding domain experts in each submarket, bringing them on the team, and then giving them the resources to cover one aspect of the market. You can't do all crypto. Now you cannot do all NFTs. There's just so much going on. I used to be able to tell you, hey, Eric, last week in this Discord, this is the conversation. And now it's just absolutely impossible. So really finding people that are passionate and domain experts in that, bring them on the team, that helps us expand into more arenas. Now you've got the NFT fund one, you've got venture capital fund two. Walk me through a little bit about your investment process of how you think about valuing, whether it's an NFT or idea generation, how you get exposure to... I want to be involved in this, or I want to hold it. I think NFTs is kind of an interesting place to start. And then maybe we'll move to how that leads into the venture capital deal flow and how you think about backing founders. On the direct NFT side, it's really a four-step process. Number one is about fundamentals. And it's really like venture fundamentals, team, product, token economics, community, market, data, risks, and assessing everything from that bare bones level. Is this a team that has experience in this domain and what they're doing in building? Do we want to back them? In terms of the market, are they building the 50th NFT marketplace or is this the first NFT marketplace? If the product passes muster, we're like, oh, wow, this is wonderful. We want to dive deeper. And if this were available on a venture level, we would do it. In this instance, let's just pretend it's not for whatever reason, the round's closed. So number two is really figuring out what is the core function here? What is the game loop? There's all types of different game loops and value drivers. Let's say it's a so rare. So so rare is a fantasy soccer game. The objective is to enter tournaments and then with your players and their real-world performance, you can win that tournament and you can actually win Ethereum, which is great. So we understand that game loop. Okay, that's great. So number three is understanding the investable universe, like the economy. Axie, for example. Axie is like this Pokemon-like game where you collect these creatures and battle them and whatnot. So Axie, you know, you have lands, you have Axies, you have items, you have SLP, which is one liquid token. You have the governance token, AXS. We understand that universe. Okay, there's like five investable asset types and classes and dive deeper in the backs. You have origin Axies, you have mystic axes and stuff like that. So it's really understanding the economy. And step number four is thesis. The thesis is totally dependent on the project because you can take Axie and Axie clone. Maybe it's very, very, very similar. The final thesis as to that specific NFT investment can be totally different. So maybe in the regular Axie, we're targeting Savannah land because it does XYZ. And then in this Axie clone, we're actually targeting these rare creatures, which are like these axes or whatnot. It's really dependent on a lot of factors. And at the end of the day, we're doing our homework, but it's venture in the sense that we are making our best guess. Like We are not absolutely certain that that's going to produce a return, especially with our strategy, which is buy and hold. Oftentimes, what we're doing is we're looking at the economy and saying, okay, what's going to drive value? To go over quickly the value drivers of the actual NFTs themselves. Art is really artist reputation or brand. If I make a Banksy, Andrew, the NFT guy, no one cares. Next day, Banksy can make the exact same piece of art and sell it for $10 million because it's Banksy. Collectibles is really about narrative. To use a physical baseball card analogy, it's one of one Babe Ruth baseball card made in 1902. So it's like super old. It was graded by Beckett Grading Services, 9.5 out of 10. So it's in pristine condition. Baseball, there's a big community of fans and they all know Babe Ruth. So like, you know, he's very popular. Those factors all go into why this piece of cardboard could sell for $100,000. 
Same thing with CryptoPunks. There's 10,000 of them only, different levels of rarity. They were made by two geniuses in Brooklyn. They were given away for free in a Bitcoin-style launch in June 2017. They're very old and one of the first NFTs on Ethereum. They're actually not the first, but one of the first. And then virtual land, it's really all about location content parameters. Location, are you in Illinois, middle of nowhere? Are you in Manhattan? The content is like, do you have a single family home on that piece of land or a skyscraper? And then the parameters is like the zoning laws. What is the height, width, length they're actually allowed to build on this piece of land? Lastly, gaming is utility. My sword does 10 damage. Your sword does 100 damage. Your sword, in theory, can kill more monsters, therefore is more useful, and therefore it should be more valuable. Of those, which one has the most of your interest right now? For me, I never really got into metaverse. It just felt like too big of a problem. I actually love your definition of metaverse, of like internet and property rights we'll get into. But like when you're talking about metaverse, when you talk about buying digital land, everyone kind of has their point where they're like, okay, maybe that's a little too much for me, even though some of them might think it's crazy that I think digital art is a valuable asset worth all this money. But for you, as you think about them, how are you thinking about capital allocation or from a top level down? Do you think about, I want this much exposure to collectibles, I want this much exposure to land? Or is it a bottoms up, this project's interesting, we really understand this game, this is where we want to play? In fund one, it is purely about the value. It doesn't matter the allocation. We just so happen to be heavy into virtual land and collectibles, and we have very little allocation to art. We are increasing our allocation to gaming assets now. The end of last year, we were selling a lot of our collectibles and virtual land. It differs for different reasons. We started to get pretty bearish last year towards the end of, let's say, November, December. Thought process was, okay, well, collectibles are driven by narrative. If art is really driven by big spenders, as we enter recession, that narrative power is going to diminish a lot. And those whales, they're not necessarily going to want to spend a million dollars on this piece of art. They're going to spend 500,000. So it's going to drop significantly. So we started to lean into more gaming assets because gaming is really driven by that utility. And out of all market participants, gaming is the least affected by macro. We actually looked at the correlation between S&P, gold, Bitcoin, Ethereum to blue chip NFTs and also non-blue chips, which is kind of hard to define. Blue chips were highly correlated with Ethereum and Bitcoin. Of course, Bitcoin and Ethereum right now, highly correlated to S&P and the regular market. So that's not that great. It's kind of not ideal, especially in this market. And then we looked at the correlation between all others. The highest correlation was with Ethereum, which made sense, but it was 0.22. It was like really low. We had an inkling that that was correct, but we didn't realize, you know, when you look at the data, it kind of opens your eyes. Wow, great. This is an uncorrelated market essentially to everything because they want to play the game. They want to do the objective. They don't really care about macro and they're willing to spend, you know, 20, 100, 500 bucks sometimes. And I also spoke to the Second Life former CEO very briefly. And I said, hey, how did you guys perform in terms of your in-game economy during 08, 07, whatnot? He's like, those were some of our best years. We just continue to crush it. And that to me is interesting. I don't know if it's like escapism. People are saying, ah, you know, I'm laid up my job and I want to go interact with this digital world that's easier for me to understand and it's fun and whatnot. I'm going to spend some money here. It fits our thesis that these market participants, they don't really mind. They're not paying attention to macro. They don't care about the CPI. They're like, no, I want to kill the dragon. I want to race my horse or whatever. So that to us was really, really compelling. You mentioned Second Life, a great episode to listen to. Patrick interviewed the founder and Bill Gurley. The thing that I took away, it's a great interview because I think Bill Gurley starts off as a skeptic of this has all been done before. It's not worth it. And then slowly starts talking himself, literally as Patrick's interviewing him, into this idea of like, well, I have my buddies that I'm in this chat with and like explains like he kind of sees where it could go. But the part that was most striking to me 
I'm going to get it wrong, but something like their in-game economy was still a billion dollars. I remember playing Second Life. If you had told me that the thing was still running and they had an in-game currency, they just never let it freely float. So it was just a game token, not a tradable asset. And it's kind of interesting to think like, where would it be right now if it actually had built on more of a blockchain way? The argument that a lot of skeptics have is you don't need it. You don't need ownership of your digital goods. Fortnite works very well, which is true. I actually agreed to stupidly to a debate with this guy who's a genius PhD from Oxford. They said, oh, you want to debate this guy? And I'm a college dropout. I should not have said yes, but I did. He was anti-NFT, I was pro-NFT. His argument boiled down to, you don't need NFTs. Things work fine without NFTs. And I said, yeah, like, you don't need them. And everyone's like, oh my God, no, you're supposed to like argue that. Sure, things work totally fine today. That is true. We actually could just pause all progress and be like, totally fine. These are great. That's not how the world is. So it does make sense if I'm spending my time and money in some digital environment, I want to own that stuff. I feel safer. I feel more confident. It's like renters versus owners. How do renters treat their apartments? Not that great. How do owners treat their condo? Pretty great. Once you have that mentality switch of, oh, I actually own this digital good. Okay, I'm going to engage with this platform or thing much more than I would have if I was just a renter. It's a really hard thing for people that haven't ever bought one, played with them. I think it's like one of the most challenging parts and why Top Shot was so powerful, to be honest, was entering the ecosystem, getting your hands on cryptocurrency when you did, for example, and buying a crypto kitty was not for what sounds like a child game, not child's play to even get access to the ecosystem. So then when you explain it to someone who hasn't experienced it, played with it, fooled around with it, it doesn't trigger the same thing. And I think to your point, a lot of people have great skepticisms and criticisms. To me, I've always just expressed it as a very experimental area that that's typically where innovation comes is people trying hard things. Had you never tried to launch an NFT fund, you wouldn't have such a deep view of the missing infrastructure that needs to be done. Why should you drive a car across the Sahara or go 100 miles? Now, there's no like reason to. Cars, like they do their speed. But when someone pushes any engineering feat or business to some extreme, they're like, if all four wheels spun at the same damn time, we could move a lot faster. What the hell were you doing to even figure that out? I'm much more of a believer in serendipity and people trying hard things. And to me, it gets to this point of like NFTs or this crazy frontier play area that you're kind of pointing to of, yeah, I don't know what you need them for, but having digital property rights that are tradable, that's enough of a headline for me to be like, I want to try to learn more or play with this. What's so great about NFTs is that it's not like with crypto, I've been crypto for a while. And I thought in 2017, I was convinced. I was like, the world will use Bitcoin and Ethereum in like 2019. A couple of years and it'll be taking over everything. That's not the case at all. Crypto is pretty hard for a lot of people to understand. And many people don't care. Many people don't care about the Fed and the printing and whatnot. It's kind of too esoteric. But people love art. People love video games. People love collecting. People are showing off and people love communities and being a part of a group and whatnot. That's what's so great about NFTs. They're like the Trojan horse to mass adoption of crypto. It's not going to be through Ethereum and that kind of things. It's going to be basketball, NBA Top Shop, Nifty Gateway. That was art. The thing that really kicked off the 2021 NFT bull market was really the Nifty Gateway and NBA Top Shot combined because you brought in the basketball collector crowd. So that was great. And that was a web 2.5, we'll call it, experience where it's semi-centralized, it's not fully decentralized. And Nifty Gateway brought in the cool art crowd. So you had two different populations of people entering and really getting red-pilled into, oh, wow, NFTs, they're pretty cool. I get it now. The existing behaviors that people are already doing, but just like digitized. I'm a collector, I'm a gamer, et cetera. Versus if you are trying to get involved in crypto from zero to one, it's like, well, what the heck? 
Filecoin and Gollum and all these kind of weird things like decentralized compute and storage. So you closed a very successful fund, fund to $100 million towards the end of 21. It was obviously amazing timing. You're getting bearish, but you were able to get a pretty stacked list of investors. There's a joke that sometimes when people talk about the whole selling pick and axes to the gold miners that at NFTs, there sounds like there's more investments in infrastructure than there is actual gold. But you've been a big name investor. I think you're an open sea and some other big investments. How did that fundraising process go? How did you explain to people your long-term outlook for what was switching you from this direct NFT trading to more venture infrastructure? We always had plans to launch a venture fund because it doesn't make total sense to not take advantage of that full stack and be there with the team, the entire evolution of that. So we were just buying the assets. That'd be great and that'd be helpful. But with that knowledge of being that in the weeds, you also help them from a higher product level. We basically had a lot of deal flow, a lot of access, but we just didn't have a venture fund. So we're like, okay, well, we were going to launch it this year. Let's bring that forward by X amount of months. And we ended up raising initially in September, close in October. That is our venture vehicle. It's funny because I was still 100% totally. No thesis change. Everything is normal. Of course, I knew the environment was frothy, but I was like, no idea where the macro economy is going to go long term. So that we just got to keep on trucking here. And then towards the end of November, on the public markets, so I call NFT fund public markets and the venture fund private. And the public markets vehicle, I was like, very quickly, I'm very bearish now, which is funny because private market valuations for you know growth stage companies have already like gone down significantly by that point. But I was like, this is going to affect everything. It was very quick. It wasn't like I was bearish while raising. I was totally bullish. I still am. But short term, next year is going to be pretty hard in the public markets fund. On the private markets fund, the venture fund, it's like a dream come true. Vast majority of our dry powder remaining. And valuations have come down by like 50, 60, 70%. Really, really excited for that. This is a generational opportunity here. We're still seeing this rush of really incredible talent from the venture side. Experts in gaming, building games, experts in art, doing that, experts in infrastructure, building out XYZ protocol. So that hasn't slowed down, shockingly. I thought it would already, but it still hasn't yet. I don't know if that's due to there's certain funds out there, A16, Electric, and whatnot, you know, they raise billions. There are some deals you come across that are like pre-product, raising at like 100 mil still. You still see that. I don't know if that's going to go away just because some people are so well capitalized and the top 0.1% of founders can still command that. Still very excited on the venture side. If anything, things are much more appealing. On the public markets fund, though, we got more defensive in Q4, Q1, Q2. And we're also sitting in a position where we now have a lot of cash and a lot of NFTs still. Those NFTs obviously have taken a hit, but these things that we have, in our opinion, and this sounds kind of goofy, but we're like, these are historical internet artifacts. These are going to last for years in terms of people wanting them, their desire, the trait of just being a cool, collectible or art asset that for whatever narrative-driven reasons usually is considered the top-tier stuff. For us, it's like, okay, well, one to two years is not really that big of a hit in terms of a piece of art or in terms of a collectible asset. It makes total sense to keep these things. So we sold off our riskier assets and held on to our blue chips. And again, it's kind of funny to call them that because it's all pretty risky and you know who knows if they're blue chips, but that's what we did. A lot of those blue chips have ended up increasing ETH value. But in total dollar terms, which we are a US dollar-denominated fund, did decrease, but overall, we're still very happy with where we're at. I mean, there's kind of two ways to do it, right? Like one, you could mark your performance in ETH terms and just say like, how did we do in ETH? But do you have performance fees based on US dollar or ETH? US dollar. Right now, for example, we're looking to stack ETH. We're looking to acquire more baseline cryptocurrency because in a year or two, we're still very bullish on the price of Ethereum and Solana and these other 
main L1s. So for us, yes, short term, the US dollar value is looking comparatively worse than last year. But if we get triple the amount of Ethereum, then we're very happy. So on the venture fund, how are you thinking about deploying capital then? There are some funds that are very well capitalized. It sounds like the way you were walking through it is you have founders, there are people that are still doing deals, your deal flow is still there. Are you slowing down, accelerating? Or are you trying to move at the same pace at whatever you were coming out of Q4? I'd say the number of novel ideas within the NFT ecosystem has dramatically dropped off because there's a flood of entrepreneurs coming and building. So if you're investing in the very first NFT lending protocol, that's very appealing. You get to the 50th, no matter how the architecture is different and it's improved by 10% this way and whatnot, it's still hard to make that play. Deal flow is slowed down from that standpoint, at least for us in the sense of the number of novel ideas is just not there. I haven't really seen the dramatic drop off that I expected. I thought it was going to be pretty stark because we actually leave our website open in terms of people sitting decks. And that's like the best gauge for general sentiment and general interest. We're still getting 20, 30 emails daily. My LinkedIn's still blowing up. My Twitter DMs are so crazy. But again, I expect that to slow down. In the traditional markets, in my opinion, I'd love to get your take. We're not there yet. It's like a 20% drop right now. For me, I'm a little more bearish. I think we could get cut in half again. Love to hear your take though. Well, everything's probabilistic to me. I think about the odds of something happening. To me, it seems like the market consensus right now is a 20% chance you have this 1970 Bill Ackman stagflation disaster, which is you have the inflation can't be brought under control and the Fed doesn't know what to do and can't raise because it's afraid of making the recession worse. So people are losing their jobs and the cost of goods and services going up. That's kind of the worst case. And that would definitely lead to your further halving of assets. So you could see ETH at 500 and Bitcoin hit 10,000. And then you have another 20% of that the market has gotten into this just unbelievably discounting mechanism where it already knows the recession's happening. It's already producing rate cuts. So it just starts to get bullish because it's really now thinking like, where are we going to be in 18 to 24 months? And you end up in this, what people have experienced for 10 to 12 years that the Fed just can drop rates and stimulate asset prices. Call those 10 or 20. And then 60 to 80% is probably that you have some sort of U-shaped recession where the Fed continues to raise, it tips you off into a recession. Inflation probably does come under control. It does go parabolic and run into the stagflation example, but you're not in a great place. And so asset prices do okay, but it's not necessarily universal where you can just buy any garbage growth company that's going to go up that certain parts of the economy will do well and other parts will do poorly. I think that right now, watching the Fed react to all of this is interesting. We talked about this in the past. I was more of a belief that productivity trends just continued to ramp up and crypto made my mind explode even further that just a few people could create so much value and productivity that startups with just a small team, like look at FTX and the amount of employees they have and a $30 billion company. I'm like, this is not good for wage inflation. You could just keep doing more with less. But there was always this question of how many assets could the government issue before people would have a problem with it. So perhaps we're at that point where it's not going to roll over. I think that people thought last month it would, and then they were hoping again they would see it this month. So it's this unexpected inflation that has people spooked. So until those numbers come down, it's hard for me to be like, put your pedal to the metal. But I would say that's kind of how I'm thinking about it is to be cautiously watching how the Fed reacts and how the numbers continue to come out. It's a hard time to allocate capital right now. I think people will say that, but like, in a rip-roaring market when everyone wants to call themselves a stock picker or a crypto picker, it's really not. It's just buy the most aggressive thing you can and hold on 
And then in a down market, you just wish that you sold everything earlier and that you didn't know any of that garbage. And we've kind of been going through these V-shaped bounces. Turning it back to you, competitive landscape. I think it'd be interesting just to get your take, not in a, having you pick apart your competitors. I know you wouldn't do that anyways, but I think it's interesting how you think about, you got the A16Zs of the world, like major venture capital that's got a huge crypto focus. You've got things like Metaphor Capital, like an NFT focus boutique. You have stuff like Starry Night, which I'm really excited to get into of what your take is with the three-hour bankruptcy and what that might look like. You have stuff like Flamingo, LLC Wrap DAOs that are purchasers against you. And then you've got the third tier, 6529's Collective or Proof Collective, where you have like sort of venture capital, sort of groups of people syndicating their ideas together. In your standpoint, how do you think about the NFT landscape? It's obviously still new of people investing in infrastructure or Web3, but how do you think about the different areas and pools of capital that founders can potentially tap on? What you're talking about is direct NFT investing. It's less so about the founders tapping into that capital because it's the capital's flowing directly to the assets themselves. There's a lot of different strategies because there's a lot of people that have some sort of collective and then they'll launch their own NFTs. I looked at early on how to generate the highest return within the NFT ecosystem. And by far, I was create your own NFTs, easily like the highest returning opportunity. We're not set up to do that. Like we are a regular investment fund, so we can't. And oftentimes the people that do that are anonymous. Not to bash on anyone anonymous, it's totally fine, but that could be a signal that this group of people, they're together, they're launching these assets anonymously. They're also like a quasi-fund. So like, what does that mean? There's that strategy. There's other people that are more akin to us. Arca, Sasha runs that. The Arca NFT fund, which is similar to us. And then 6529, yeah, it's kind of more blue chips. There's so many different flavors and styles and techniques. DAOs like Flamingo and Neon, they're really incredible at collecting in basically just intelligence and just figuring out the pulse of what's going on. Therefore, very effective on the collectibles and art side because you can have that better feeling. I know it sounds very non-quantitative because it's not. Versus virtual land and gaming assets, those are more quantifiable in the sense that, okay, there's stats. There's some sort of stats that we can measure. And through that measurement, we can give some sort of rough value versus like a collectible. It's like, how do you ascribe value to like board ape? You can say, oh, the airdrops have using this much. But if you're just buying board apes initially, I had some LPs show me board apes early on. And I was like, it's cool, but I don't really see it, which is funny. I'm in it all day, every day. And I was like, it's cool. It's another collectible. There's different sides of the markets, different flavors. I don't really have a strong opinion. I don't really think about it, to be honest. I think about what we're doing, making our ship operate the best it can and making the best investments that we can. I'd say that one thing is the space is very collaborative which is again, surprising because you'd figure that it's not. That's on the venture side. On the NFT side, I'd say it's less collaborative simply because the liquidity is so thick. You can't really talk about what you're doing until you acquire a position in it. And then you can say, hey guys, so we acquired XYZ. If you let slip what you're in the process of acquiring, because it can take up to weeks to actually acquire a position in the size that you actually want, then you can totally ruin your entry and that investment could be completely finished. So I don't know if you have any views on it yet, but I think one thing that's going to be kind of topical is Three Arrows, back Starry Night, VVD, a famous collectors as kind of like the PM, I think, to run it. I believe Starry Night is going to be part of a Three Arrows liquidation. And their collection is amazing. What VVD put together is very special. And it seems to me like from the old trade file, like distressed credit, it's a great opportunity for someone who has capital or LPs to basically show up and show them a distressed offer for like one of the most exciting collections. Have you thought at all how this might play out? what's happened or like, is the court reaching out to big funds like you guys to say, would you ever bid on this? No court's reaching out to us. We have a lot of other NFT folks and investors that are reaching out to us saying, hey, 
you have access to BBD and Starry Night. For us personally, our strategy has always been buying assets that we consider undervalued and undiscovered. If everyone knows about something, that means a lot of that alpha is gone and therefore we don't really want to go there. You can still earn like a two to three to four X. And I say that number, which sounds ridiculous, but the issue is size. It's really hard to size in and size out. But that's easy for assets that have been discovered, relatively easy, I should say. But for assets that are undiscovered, that's what we target. If they're real world expensive, we often will not deploy capital in them. We try to find something that is uncovered, no one's really talking about it, acquire position, and we just sit up. We're buy and hold. We're not trying to trade. We hope that due to our homework and the fundamentals, people will eventually discover this and believe what we believe, and then price will appreciate. Something like Starry Night, really appealing. Yeah, their collection's incredible. They also did buy the top on pretty much everything. So there's also that. And it's also interesting to see that there's some activity like that where there's well-capitalized people that are a little late to the game in 2021 and early 2022, and they're buying these collections at their peak prices. It's easy to say peak now that things have gone down. And back then, you could argue that it could continue to go up. But if the original purchaser purchased something for $40 and the buyer is buying it for $250,000, that terrifies me. It's not something that we would do. If we're going to go that, we want to see years of history and a really, really strong thesis backed by some evidence that that makes sense. I think StoryNet's great. I think that collection's wonderful, but we will sadly not be participating in any sort of liquidation of those assets. The next topic I want to end on was this idea of use cases, which I feel like has become a loaded word on Twitter. And I think the reason why I get so frustrated by it is similar to the maximalism debate. It's kind of like, there's no use cases and you need to prove it to me to convince me to like listen to you. And then on the other side, you have some people who are crazy of like, I don't even need to think about this. It's going to change the world. I'm just going to put all my money into it. Obviously, it's hard to learn when there's an extreme view. And I know for engagement on Twitter, this is just how the world is moving. So maybe I'm just more of like a fuddy-duddy of just trying to figure out what actually works. What I'm curious about is the stuff we talked about earlier is there's all these people experimenting. And this is now going to be like more on the venture side. You're meeting founders who are trying new things, who are playing with stuff. To your point, you're not excited about the 50th NFT lending protocol. But the first time someone came to you, that was a novel idea and creative. What are some of the things that you're being pitched that you think are the most interesting or the best experiments that people are playing with right now that might run into more use cases in the future? Art NFTs are great in our opinion, because it's really giving power to the artists. Let's say that they're in X country that is far away and the shipping is difficult to actually ship their art to someone overseas and whatnot. They can now create art totally digitally and send that to a collector abroad instantaneously on the internet. And that's really effective and they can receive those funds that exact second. That's awesome. And that really opens up all types of creativity and all types of creative types to that market that maybe couldn't participate before. The collectors, they're collecting because they want to show off their status. Maybe they want to invest in financial asset. They just like the feeling of collecting or supporting artists, who knows what. They can also scratch that edge very effectively through digital ownership. Gaming, similar, where people are already buying digital goods. So it makes sense that Fortnite, for example, billions of dollars per year selling digital goods. It makes sense that you just own those digital goods throughout your gaming career. Because if you're going to spend a lot of time and effort into that, you want to be able to own that. There's also virtual worlds. We see them as more social networks. And keep in mind that like, see them as social networks. They're like the pre-Napster of social. Napster's not here. iTunes is not here. Spotify is not here. We'll have that evolution. But right now, it's still super, super early with these. You can think of them like user-owned and governed social networks because you go there, you buy your profile, quote unquote, it's a piece of land, and you can build anything you want. So instead of just posting pictures of yourself, you can now make an e-commerce store and actually sell NFTs. You can now create a mini game if you know how to code. You can post pictures of yourself if you want. You can make a house, make a gallery. 
all sorts of different things that unlimited optionality, but you're also incentivized to tell more people about it and actually add content to your land or to your profile. Because if you add that content, it looks cool. It actually will increase the value of your land. In terms of the actual governance, there's a whole bunch of issues, obviously, with having certain people on Twitter that Twitter doesn't want, and they're banning them and Facebook and all, all sorts of stuff. So to have this network or platform controlled by the users and they can say, oh no, we don't appreciate this behavior. We're going to kick them out. A little bit dangerous, but also very exciting. There's some use cases there. Financialization, obviously that's huge. Good friends, David and Connor, they're creating a platform called MetaStreet, which is essentially a liquidity provider for NFT lending platforms. So they're like the number one protocol that offers loans against these NFTs. They mentioned a stat, I believe it was compared to the total trade volume of NFTs, the total penetration of NFT credit is something like 0.1% or something like that. And if you look at the trade volume, you're like, wow, this is a very large market, only going to increase in size as more people get on. Because keep in mind, OpenSea had something like 2 million total wallets interact with it. 2 million, not a lot. Coinbase has like 68 or 70 or maybe even 80 now million total accounts. Well, still very early in terms of the usage. You look at the total trade volume in the credit market, you're like, wow, it's so tiny. It should, in theory, become much larger because there's going to be a portion of people that want to be more degenerate. They're more gamblers. They want to take a loan and go ultra long and leverage long and do all sorts of crazy stuff. But there's also going to be a lot of people that are in crypto, like myself, can't get a loan. I'm trying to buy a condo. I can't get a loan because they say 99% of your net worth is on crypto. We can't take this. So not suggesting that people do this right now, take a loan against our crypto pond because that's very dangerous. But having that ability for anyone to do that in the world, that is unlocking just incredibly, incredibly powerful opportunity for people to create businesses, to buy a house, to do whatever permissionlessly. That's incredible. I'm excited about it all. I know it sounds cringy. I really am. There's so many cool and interesting things being developed every day. And they're so diverse. Everything from art to finance to collecting to gaming. I want to double click into one of those. Were you an early collector of Axie? Not early, but I was a collector at some point. From the Axie experiment. That's just one that people look to. And it was someone we had on. And I think that the thing that struck me about the challenge of the gaming side is that building a game that everyone wants to play is a big challenge. Creating a monetary policy that outside people have influence over is exponentially hard. When Axie took off, similar to like other stuff we've seen, it's like these guys were building for several years. All of a sudden, our small population just turns all of their focus and the game goes exponential in a way that tech companies don't go. And so I think people think it's, okay, it was slow and then boom, exponential. But one question I have is that, was product market fit of play to earn or gaming overstated because of the economics? Was it that people came just for that? And then as soon as that's gone, the game kind of just detonates and people run away and then they're just waiting for the next one to launch. How hard of a challenge is it as someone who's investing in this type of stuff to think about, I think it's a cool experiment. I think it'd be amazing. How do you think about the game investments, the time it will take for like kind of product market fit to have an open game with an open economy? As you pointed out, games, to even make a fun game, it's really, really difficult. That's challenge number one. Make something that is enjoyable, fun, and addictive, et cetera. That's extremely hard. Adding on that economy, it's not a closed economy, it's an open economy. That is unbelievably difficult. With Axie, we see the Axie style token economics, is what we'll call it. We see it as like a customer acquisition play where, yes, you are going to pay your users with this token, this methodology, and you're going to do that for a period of time. And we think that that's fine. Everyone should be very aware that this is a customer acquisition strategy. And at some point, that will not work. When there's no longer continued growth, that'll slow down and actually reverse. So you should have token economic model 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, et cetera, lined up and ready to go. 
completely out of the game. We think as like a growth hack strategy, that's totally fine and valid. But in terms of a sustainable economy, obviously not. I don't think anyone looked at that and was like, oh, this is going to last forever. It's like, no, after like six months, it was going to be like the whole world would have to play in order to sustain that. Most of these economies right now, they're like the Saudi Arabia's of emerging economies. Maybe Saudi Arabia is a bit too advanced. Saudi Arabia is an okay example because they are heavily reliant on oil. And if anything happens to that activity, that economic system around oil, that could really screw them up. And they're dealing with outside forces and whatnot. And that's how these in-game economies are today. It's like they're pretty simplistic. They're focused on one activity. And if something happens to that, they can really screw up their broader country. We need to move into more sustainable first world economies. I know it's not a term that people use anymore, but we need to have diverse economies that are not just oil. It is oil and manufacturing and services and, and whatnot. And it really is very dependent on the type of game that can sustain that. If World of Warcraft had an NFT economy, I think it would generate absolutely scabs of money every year. Because for example, when I played Warcraft, I was like a miner. I would go out and I would mine and I would sell my raw materials to smelters and they would smelt it and armor and all sorts of different things. And that person had a job and they were very good at that job and you had stats and whatnot. That to me is like where we need to head. I don't know how we're going to necessarily do that with a bejeweled. If you have a bejeweled, like how are you going to create this very diverse economy that has outside forces impacting it? Because we do know with a closed system, these tokens do work because these free-to-play games like Bejeweled, you can buy gems and whatnot in order to like level up and stuff like that. And that works totally fine. But when you're dealing with the fluctuating price of the token, fluctuating price of Ethereum and everything else, it can cause obviously big impacts. And that's why I don't know how those are going to evolve. We just have to keep in mind that this didn't exist 16 months ago. No one really knew about this stuff very, very recently. Not only does it take two to three, four, five years sometimes to create a great game, but these economic systems, this is brand new. So people are going to be experimenting from now into the next five to eight years. There's not going to be one silver bullet. It's like, oh, this is the cut and paste economy. It's great, whatever. But there's going to be a lot of value created, a lot of value destroyed over the coming years. And we're going to figure this out. At some point, we're going to have these in-game economies that are sustainable and that do make total sense and don't rely on exponential continued growth. How that evolves, I'm not really sure, but I'll tell you when I find out because we will definitely be there. I think it's a great place to end. And Andrew, we like to end with the same question of, what are you most excited to see built or invest in perhaps over the next six months? And what are you most excited to see developed or built over the next six years? Next six months, what I'm most excited about, this has like been cliche since years, but better onboarding. Because I recently had my sister, she's 32, relatively tech savvy, uses everything and she knows her way around a computer pretty well. She wanted to buy virtual land in a game called CryptoVoxels, now called Voxels. She wanted to spend $500, solid amount of money. And she called me, she said, Andrew, I've never in my life tried this hard to spend this much money. It's never been this hard, ever. And I was like, oh my gosh. When she said that, it was like, wow, we have some serious growing up to do. Because this is like Q4 of 2021 when this happened. It wasn't that long ago. We need to figure out how to deal with the complexity of wallets, the seed phrase and whatnot, and going to buy the Ethereum to power the wallet and power the transactions and whatnot. It's gotten way better, but it's still very confusing to someone who basically has no exposure to crypto. It's almost impossible. That's why. The 2021 bull market was really launched on Nifty Gateway, which was centralized, and then NBA Top Shot, which is like semi-centralized. We need more things like that, Web 2.5, or to get to Web 3. And in six years, it goes back to the economics of these in-game economies, because if we're able to figure out sustainable systems for games, we can figure out all sorts of new economic models for our regular world. I almost see this NFT economy now and the crypto economy now as training to figure out much larger problems in our normal physical world going forward. 
I don't think anyone would say like the Fed's perfect and like our financial system's perfect. There's clearly a lot of problems. It is pretty good, so far pretty solid. But if we're able to figure out by mass experimentation of what is really, really effective, I think that would be stellar if we can apply that to the physical world and solve a lot of problems. It's kind of a pipe dream. I'm not sure if it's even possible, but in theory it is. That gets me very, very excited. It's a really interesting thought process. And I always love talking with you, Andrew. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, sir. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. As a Lowe's MVPs Pro Rewards member, get reliable GE appliances for your properties and save while doing it. Right now, take advantage of bonus points rewards, where you can earn one bonus point on every $1 spent on the GE laundry pair. Perfect for any contractor or job, this laundry pair is affordable and built to last. Head to your local Lowe's or visit Lowe's.com to save big on GE appliances. Bonus points calculated before taxes and fees after applicable discounts, if any. About 3-4 through 3 subject to change.